So remember, Josiah um, was the first king that Jeremiah was um, preaching and prophesying underneath. And then after him, uh, his next Josiah's next son, Jehoahaz, uh, went onto the throne. Who was actually his second son. And then after him, Jehoiakim went onto the throne. And after Jehoiakim, um, his son uh, Jeconiah, as he's sometimes known, or Jehoiachin, is goes on the throne. And uh, Jehoiakim, the really mean one, he's kind of the worst of the lot, I think, uh, from doing a bit of study on this. He dies, and in fact. If you look to the Chronicles record, the last chapter of Chronicles, you'll see uh, how it's recorded in 2 Chronicles 36 and verse 6 that uh, against him, Jehoiakim, came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, bound him in fetters to carry him to Babylon. Now, although he bound him in fetters to carry him to Babylon, we actually learn that um, he didn't make it to Babylon. He was thrown over the city wall. Um, and so you can put some cross references on your, your margin there uh, to Jeremiah 36, verse 30, as I put on the, uh, the screen, and to Jeremiah 22 and verse 19. He had the burial of an ass. You know, that, that's what he was. That's what, uh, yeah, he, uh, so he had that burial. So, yeah, Jehoiakim came to an end. And his son then, Jehoiachin, in verse 9 of 2 Chronicles 36, who's sometimes called Jeconiah, or another times called Coniah even, um, he is uh, then on going on to the throne. So that's Jehoiakim's son, Josiah's grandson. But he's only there for three months before the king of Babylon takes him off to Babylon. And then the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, puts onto the throne... Mataniah. So verse 11, and you say, oh, that's not Mataniah. That is Mataniah. So Mataniah was his name, and the king of Babylon changed his name to Zedekiah. And you'd see that in the king's record that, uh, yeah, he then, so Zedekiah, who was uh, Josiah's third son, he then goes on to the throne. And actually, Jeremiah, Josiah had another son that uh, we're not going to look at today. Well, Zedekiah, as I say, he's a puppet king. You know, Nebuchadnezzar sets him up and he's a weak character and he just goes along with whoever is shouting the loudest. Um, normally Nebuchadnezzar, of course. Uh, so he does what Nebuchadnezzar asks him. But at other times, the kind of um, people in the land seem to be able to persuade him and his own princes. And he, he's just a wicked guy. But a lot of it is to do with him being a weak man. He's a bit like Pontius Pilate. You can draw some uh, parallels there. And an example of his fickleness comes in Jeremiah 34. So let's go to chapter 34 of Jeremiah. Um, I know that our reading was 35. We'll see how that links in. But I want to go to Jeremiah 34 now. So here in this chapter, we, we know from the beginning of it that we're in the, the time of Zedekiah, verse 2. Um, so actually, historically, it's after chapter 35, and we'll talk about that uh, in a moment. But here, basically, in the time of Zedekiah, the Babylonians are on them. You know, the Babylonians put Zedekiah in place. He's allowed to reign for 11 years, but it, it's so obvious that they are doomed. Babylon has got control, really. And as the Babylonians are coming and now beginning to put the city to a siege, Zedekiah does something kind of really, uh, at first you think noble and then backtracks on it quickly. 
He obeys the law of Moses, where it stated that at the end of seven years, any servants could be set free. Okay, so he sets the the servants free. And here's a a picture on the screen. Um, This is not my artwork, but um, yeah, I was able to kind of pick it up from uh, Google and uh, no doubt a superb picture of Zedekiah there. And, And he lets these servants be set free, which was that they were then enabled to sort of be uh, free of any work they were obliged to do. Uh, and that was from Deuteronomy chapter 15, okay, that said that that could happen. But we have to question Zedekiah's motives in following God's law, because as I say, at this stage, the Babylonians were actually on the doorstep. So you can imagine that Zedekiah's sort of starting to think, oh, maybe we should actually try to please the God of Israel. You know, that we're doomed. However, the Babylonians then were momentarily distracted by the Egyptians. Jeremiah warned them, though, the people of uh, Judah, that they would be back. So verse 21, Zedekiah, the king of Judah and his princes, will I give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of them that seek their life and into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which have gone up from you. So Jeremiah says, look, let me tell you now, you will be given over to the king of Babylon and to his armies. But what Zedekiah did, which was so mean, is he saw the fact that the Babylonians had come out for a bit from the siege and sort of been distracted by the Egyptians and decided to suddenly round up the servants and take them back in. So where initially he said, okay, the servants can go free. What's the point in having a servant if you've got the Babylonian army coming in? So, But at first you think, oh, isn't he good? But as soon as he thinks the Babylonians have gone, even though it's momentarily, he's suddenly saying, right, bring them all back in. So verse 13, thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day when I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of Bonman, saying, at the end of seven years, let you go every man his brother in Hebrew, which has been sold unto thee. And when he has served thee six years, thou shalt let him go free from thee. But your fathers hearken not unto me, neither incline their ear. And ye were now turned and had done right in my sight and proclaiming liberty every man to his neighbour. And ye had made a covenant before me in the house, which is called by my name. But you turned and polluted my name and caused every man his servant and every man his handmaid, whom he had set at liberty at their pleasure to return and brought them into subjection to be unto you for servants and for handmaids. So can you see they broke the promise they made to these servants? Well, in this kind of horrid act, Zedekiah and the other rich people who had servants are going to be castigated by Jeremiah, who now of course inspired by God draws a parallel with how they've broken God's covenant with Abraham so let's just get this in our heads then they've broken a covenant that they made with the servants they said to the servants okay you can go free they thought they could let them go free because the Babylonians had disappeared for a bit they then suddenly saying no no no, come back because they can see the Babylonian strength is there and God is saying you know that is so unbelievable that you would do that okay and God is going to make them realize that actually it's a bit like they in the way in which they've broken his covenant, the promises to Abraham. So let's see if we can try and get this together. Come back to Genesis chapter 15. So just replaying in my head what I just said there, and I feel like I just said it wrong, that basically 
the Babylonians were around the city. They people in there, the rich people had servants. The Babylonians, because they're around the city and about to take the city, they thought to themselves, Zedekiah and his men, let's just release these servants. Let's let them go. You know, in the end, we want them to fight for us, kind of thing. Let them go. The Babylonians then went away from the city for a bit. But what they then did, the meanies in the city, is say, right, servants, get them back in. Okay, so they broke the covenant they made with them. And Jeremiah is going to draw a parallel with that, with how they've actually broken God's eternal covenant, the promises, and, and help them to learn this lesson. So in Genesis chapter 15, we have got the promises to Abraham that he would have this innumerable offspring like the stars in heaven and that he would inherit the land. So Genesis 15, verse 5. God brought forth Abraham abroad, said, look now toward heaven, tell the stars if you're able to number them. He said unto them, so shall thy seed be. Abraham believed in the Lord and God counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Coldies to give thee this land to inherit it. He said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Now, how, how am I going to know that? I'm going to inherit this. God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Be sure that you know, in this covenant, you're going to see that I absolutely am going to make this happen. So what's the covenant? Well, it says in verse nine, take a heifer of three years old and a she goat of three years old and a ram of three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Abraham took him all these things and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against one another. But the birds divided he not. So he's got these animals and he's had to cut them up and he's put them one on one side and another side. OK, he's divided them. And then what happens in verse 17 is, well, after Abraham's been put to sleep, Abraham's able to see in a vision that when it was dark, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp pass through the pieces. Now, those pieces right, are representing the covenant that God is making. But actually, what then passes through this covenant is symbols of the presence of God, smoking furnace, okay, burning lamp. You know, we think of uh, Israel going through the, the wilderness, having these things as symbols of God's presence. That's what goes through. And Abraham is learning that this covenant can only come into fruition, can only come into force, will only come about by God going through. But of course, God is faithful. He will keep what he says he will keep. Well, we're not going to sort of keep trying to open up this uh, passage in Genesis, but it's a sort of great one to have a study at and enjoy looking at. But let's go back to Jeremiah 34, because if you look against verse 10 of Genesis 15, he divided these animals in the midst. Have you got a cross-reference against that? My cross-reference is Jeremiah 34, verses 18 and 19. So I circle that. Let's head back to Jeremiah 34. So here in Jeremiah, we're going to see how Jeremiah is drawing a parallel between the promise that they, the rich people had made with their servants uh, and the covenant that they had broken with God. You know, th these rich people had broken a promise to these servants. And Jeremiah is saying, you have broken not only that, but your covenant with God. The covenant was something that started when God made promises to Abraham. 
saying his seed would possess the land. And in verse 9, for example, of Jeremiah 34, and again in verse 14, we see them being called, the servants being called, the Hebrews. Now, the first use of the term Hebrew is in Genesis 14 and verse 13. I put it on the screen regarding Abraham or Abraham then, the Hebrew. It's not common at all. It's only used 16 times in the whole Old Testament. So he's drawing them back to Abraham. And he says then in verse 18, I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant, which they had made before me, when they cut the calf in twain and passed between the parts thereof. The prince of Judah, the prince of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, all the people of the land which passed between the parts of the calf. Now, I'm not saying that all these people actually literally passed through the, the, the parts, but they were a part of that covenant that God had made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. The promises to Abraham, that covenant. And they were now ignoring the word of God. And so they were they had, in, in a sense, essence broken the covenant that God had made with them. He talks of passing, doesn't he, between the parts of the sacrifice to make them think back to the covenant that God had made with Abraham. That's clearly the point there. So again, your margin will have it. Genesis 15 verse 10, circle it. That's where Jeremiah is drawing their minds. In fact, this whole chapter is focused on the covenant. When we think of the covenant, we think of the covenants of promise. So let me just make sure you've got this. Get your colouring pencil out for this one. Verse 8, they made a covenant. Verse 10, they'd enter into the covenant. Verse 13, I made a covenant with your fathers. Verse 15, and then twice in verse 18. Six times he emphasises this word to make them realise the wider significance of their behaviour. So they're, but yes, they've broken this covenant with the servants, the Hebrews. But he's using that to make them understand that actually, in reality, God's sort of big issue is the fact they've broken their covenant with God, with, uh, yeah, the promises that was made to Abraham. Abraham and his descendants had been promised the land. That was true. Yet they were going to be thrown out of the land and taken off to Babylon because of their disregard for God's ways. They, not God, had broken the covenant. Now, the reason this gets more fascinating, it does in my mind anyway, is that actually when we turn to chapter 35, we notice that chapter 35, verse 1, is in the days of Jehoiakim. So I would suggest this is some 10 years before the events of chapter 34, possibly a bit more even. So why on earth have we got chapter 35 following on from chapter 34 this is then the next stage of when you're trying to do a chronology with jeremiah what you're trying to do is think to yourself okay i, I can start putting things in order but really it doesn't matter if i can put them in an order what matters is why has god put them in this order what why is chapter 35 following on from chapter 34 and i think there's a great reason that we can find out now because there was a family from the family of the Rechabites who lived outside of Jerusalem, so away from the city, 
but they had come to Jerusalem during one of Nebuchadnezzar's sieges. Let's just uh, like just recap on what we read already in chapter 35. Go to the house of the Rechabites first to speak to them and bring them into the house of the Lord. So Jeremiah's been told, bring these Rechabites into the temple and give them wine to drink. So I took Jazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, and his brethren and all his sons and the whole house of the Rechabites. I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes, which was above the chamber of Masiah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites pots full of wine and cups. And I said, drink the wine. They said, we will not drink the wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons forever. Neither shall ye build house, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyard, nor have any. But all your days ye shall dwell in tents, that ye may live many days in the land wherein ye are strangers. And they go on to kind of reemphasize, look, that's what we've been told by uh, Jonadab, the son of Rechab. So Jeremiah has got Jeazaniah and his family, these descendants of Rechab, to come into the temple. He's offered them wine to drink, knowing full well that they will turn it down. And Jeremiah gets him to publicly say why. And Jeazaniah, as we just read, tells them the reason is, in verse 6, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, don't drink wine. So. Jonadab, the son of Rechab, actually, if you look in your margin against Jonadab, does your margin give you, mine gives me 2 Kings 10, verse 15 to 23. That is 250 years ago, right? So this guy made said 250 years ago to his sons, don't drink wine. And this family took it so seriously what God, what, sorry, their father had promised, said to them not to do, that they upheld that for 250 years. And Jeremiah was so confident that they would do that, that he's able to get them to publicly come into Jerusalem, stand in the temple and says, hey, guys, I'll give you some wine for free. No, we won't drink it. Why not? He, of course, Jeremiah knows full well why not, because our father Jonadab, the son of Rechab, told us, don't drink wine. So here they are. They're upholding their father's commandment. And notice this as well. Verse seven, their father told them, don't build houses, don't uh, sow seed, don't plant vineyards or have any. But all your days dwell in tents. Well, who did we know? Who do we know that's famous for living in tents? Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they are famous for the fact that they have no permanent dwelling place. They lived in tents together looking for the promises. Hebrews 11 tells us that. So this family were behaving more like Abraham than the Jews in Jerusalem, the descendants of Abraham. God is furious. These guys, these these Rechabites are prepared to obey their father. And yet the people of Judah and Jerusalem won't obey him, despite the fact that he is their father. So he says, verse 13, 
Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will ye not receive instruction to hearken to my word, saith the Lord. The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, that he commanded his sons not to drink wine are performed, but unto this day they drink none, but obey their father's commandment. Notwithstanding, I spoke unto you, rising up early, speaking, but you not hearken unto me. I sent also unto you all my servants, the prophets, rising up early, sending and saying, Return ye now, every man, from his evil way, and mend your doings. Go not after other gods to serve them. You shall dwell in the land which I have given to you and your fathers. But you have not inclined your ear, nor hearken unto me. And so can you see how upset God is that this family are quite willing to obey their father that gave a commandment some 250 years ago. But God, as their father, inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah won't listen to. Now, do you know what's even more amazing about this is this. The Rechabites were Kenites. And the Kenites are at the top of the list of people who would be thrown out of the land so the promises of the Abraham could come true. That's Genesis 15 again that I'm putting on the screen for you. Unto thy seed... The promises to Abraham are given. Well, have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river of Euphrates? So the Kenites, uh, that's their land, right? But God is saying, actually, to, the, to Abraham's seed, you can have this land. And yet here is this Kenite family who've clearly chosen to come into a relationship with Yahweh, the God of Israel, but are now behaving better than the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem, and they are actually trying to live out their faith. They're behaving like Abraham would do. And so the challenge that Jeremiah is giving to this people is, why aren't you? Why are you not putting your faith into action? Come with me to Galatians 3. Galatians 3. Verse 27. As many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The way to have a part in the land the way to inherit the promises that were made to Abraham is to put your faith in action. And for us, that involves baptism, which is the beginning of a life where we're now saying, I'm not going to try and follow my ways. I'm going to try to follow God's ways. I believe that his ways are right. And I'm going to try to make that a reality in my life. Well, the Jews in Jerusalem, they just thought they were sorted. They thought that no one could touch them because they were the natural descendants of Abraham. God says, you're wrong. To be a descendant of Abraham is to put your faith in action. And so the Rechabites were more like descendants of Abraham than the actual descendants of Abraham. They were an outstanding example of faith. Like the Rechabites, Jeremiah was someone who completely lived out his faith. You've heard the phrase, put your money where your mouth is type of thing. Jeremiah did that. 
you see, whilst he was explaining to the people that they were going to be punished by God and that God was going to use the Babylonians to this end, he also repeatedly told them that after 70 years, God would bring them back again to this place. Yes, it's true. You were going to go to Babylon and you need to accept that. But God will bring us back to this place. But as usual, the people wouldn't listen to him. And when the sieges started in earnest and the Babylonians started coming down more often, the price of land dramatically fell because no one thought they'd be able to keep it. We'll come to Jeremiah 32 now, because you see how Zedekiah, like he was just so fickle. You know, he, you know, as the Babylonians coming down, says to the servants, OK, you can go free. As the Babylonians go away again for a bit, he suddenly says, oh, no, the servants come back. He breaks the covenant. Jeremiah, though, he's an absolute contrast to that he's consistent. He believes that God is going to take them to Babylon and that he will let them return again. And here in Jeremiah chapter 32, you see Jeremiah putting his faith into action, as it were. He's been put in prison at this point. OK, this is not a terrible prison for Jeremiah, but the fact is he's still in prison and he's been put there to stop him prophesying. We'll consider when he goes into a terrible prison later. Here, let's just pick this up. Jeremiah 32. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah. Now, remember, how long does Zedekiah reign for? Easy to remember. Josiah, 31 years. Then you've got Jehoahaz, uh, three months. Jehoiakim, 11 years. Jeconiah, three months. Zedekiah, 11 years. So this is only one year left until the whole lot of them are going to go to Jerusalem We're right now at the end of the kingdom of Judah. So he's then, well, let's just read it again. In the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem. Jeremiah, the prophet, was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. So he's been shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king's house. So I guess in the castle wall somewhere he's shut up. But at this stage, as I say, it's not some terrible prison, but he's really under a bit of a house arrest to stop him just publicly talking. They don't want him talking to people. So he's in prison and then something quite exciting happens for him. Verse six. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, behold, Hanamiel, the son of Shalom, mine uncle, shall come unto thee, saying, buy thee my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. So Hanamiel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said unto me, Buy my field, I pray thee, that's in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is thine, and the redemption is thine. Buy it for thyself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So he's absolutely confident this is the word of God, because actually God told him this would happen. So let's keep going. I bought the field of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, that was in Anathoth, and weighed him the money, 18, uh, even 17 shekels of silver. And I subscribed the evidence and sealed it and took witness and weighed him the money in the balances. So I took the evidence of the purchase, both that which was sealed according to the law, the custom and that which was open. And I gave the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Meassiah, in the sight of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses that subscribed the book of the purchase before all the Jews that sat in the court of the prison. And I charged Beirut before them, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these evidences, this evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and this evidence which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel that they may continue many days. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. So you can see Jeremiah believes that when God says you will come back to this land. Okay, so he's willing to buy this land that nobody else wants. Right. He puts his money where his mouth is. His money. Okay, he was willing to do it because he recognized that God was in control. Now, uh, I think I'm just going to skip that out now. Apologies. I'm just deciding. I'm recognizing time's flying by. What can we do here? So, yeah, as I say, he's putting his faith into action by purchasing this field. Now, I want you to just notice that uh, the, the key word that comes out here in chapter 32 is the word evidence. OK, so hopefully you can see that from verse 10, 11, 12, 14, three times, 16 once. This is the word. This he's got the evidence of his faith here that he wants to have this this land and he wants everyone to recognize that here is the deed, the evidence for that. Seven times we see that word. Jeremiah wanted to be sure that this was his and he wanted the evidence to prove it. He couldn't see the land in prison, but he believed that God be, would be with him. He believed that one day he would possess that land. Well, to me, that is faith in action, isn't it? Faith is the substance of those things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I think it's just lovely, isn't it, that when the world around us devalue more and more the inheritance that God has given us, will we show Jeremiah's determination to grasp it with both hands? Jeremiah believed what God was saying. And even though everyone else was saying, forget it, you know, no, no point in that. He was like, yes, I'll put my money. I believe this. So he buys this land absolutely confident that he will inherit it one day. Well, when he's released, it seems that Jeremiah looks to go and receive his land immediately. So just come to chapter 37 now and you see Jeremiah on his way to go and pick up his land that he's been prompted. He's sort of bought. Jeremiah 37 and verse 11. It came to pass that when the army of the Chaldeans was broken up from Jerusalem for fear of Pharaoh's army. Remember, I told you that's what's gone on in chapter 34 that they break up for a while because of the Egyptians. And that's when he suddenly says, oh, I want the servants back. So we know that historically happened that Jeremiah. OK, so they've broken up for a bit and Jeremiah's set free, went forth out of Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin to separate himself thence in the midst of the people. So he's on his way to the land of Benjamin. Why would he be going there? That's where his hometown is, Anathoth. That's where this land is that he can inherit. Right. But look, unfortunately, what happens when he was in the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the ward was there whose name was Erijah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Hananiah. And he took Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, thou fallest away to the Chaldeans. Then said Jeremiah, it's false. I'm not falling away to the Chaldeans. But he hearkened not to him. So Elijah took Jeremiah and brought him to the princes. Now, Hananiah there, let's have a look at him. Hananiah was a false prophet who Jeremiah had predicted would die before the end of the year. And we, you can read about that in chapter 28. So circled Hananiah, 
and just put next to it chapter 28. And Jeremiah said about Hananiah, you will die before the end of the year, Hananiah. Okay. And he did. And now Hananiah's grandson, Erijah, there in verse 13, would have hated Jeremiah and is now falsely accusing Jeremiah of running away to join the Babylonians, as you just saw there in verse 14. And so sadly, Jeremiah then gets taken off again to prison, this time, though, to a much worse prison, to Jonathan's prison. I think he would have been in complete darkness in Jonathan's prison. And I, the reason I know that this one is a really grim place is, well, we can sort of follow cross references to the Lamentations of Jeremiah. We see that Lamentations 3 I put on the, the, the screen as a possible cross reference. But what I do know is this. When Zedekiah takes him out of this prison, Jeremiah begs Zedekiah not to go back in it. This is how awful it is. Let's just read this now. Jeremiah chapter 36. And we're going to pick up where we were. Now, where are my apologies? It's chapter 37, isn't it? Jeremiah chapter 37. And let's pick up now at verse 15. Wherefore, the princes were wroth with Jeremiah and smote him and put him in prison in the house of Jonathan the scribe. For they had made that the prison. When Jeremiah was entered into the dungeon and into the cabins, Jeremiah remained there many days. Then Zedekiah the king sent and took him out. And the king asked him secretly in his house and said, Is there any word from the Lord? And Jeremiah said, There is. For, said he, Thou shalt be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. Moreover, Jeremiah said unto Zedekiah, What have I offended against thee or against thy servants or against this people that you put me in prison? Where are now your prophets which prophesied unto you, saying, The king of Babylon shall not come against you nor against this land? Therefore, hear now, I pray you, O my lord, the king, let my supplication, I pray thee, be accepted before thee, that thou cause me not to return to the house of Jonathan the scribe, lest I die there. So you can see, can't you, that Jeremiah is begging, please don't put me back in that awful prison. So now he's in the court and you can imagine the soldiers walking through there. And they talk to Jeremiah and he tells them the truth about the fact that the whole city eventually will fall. But that sort of message, of course, went down like a lead balloon. They didn't want to hear it. But Jeremiah, all he could ever do is tell them the truth. But they didn't want to hear it. So we know in verse 21 of that chapter that Jeremiah is now just in the court of the prison. So he's back as to where he was before, perhaps. But then let's look at the next chapter, chapter 38. And verse five, four, the princes said to the king, we beseech thee, let this man be put to death. For he's weakened the hand of the men of war that remain in the city in the hands of all the people in speaking such words unto them. Obviously, he's saying to them, just give in to the king of Babylon. Well, these princes hate that. They're like, please tell him to be quiet. Get rid of him. Put him to death. We don't want him giving this message. Zedekiah said, behold, He's in your hand. The for the king is not he that can do anything against you. What a fool. What a weakling. Zedekiah is the king, but he's scared of these princes. What an idiot. Who am I to stop you? Well, you're the king. They don't take Jeremiah far, though. But what they do is horrific. Verse 6. Then took they Jeremiah 
and cast him into the dungeon of Malchijah, the son of Hamalek, that was in the court of the prison. And they let down Jeremiah with cords. And in the dungeon, there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sunk in the mire. He's being lowered into the city's sewer systems to drown. This is how much these twisted princes hate him. They want him to slowly sink and drown in there. Well, I'm not sure how long he's in there for, but I do know this, that Ebed Melech is more worried he'll starve to death. So he must have been down there a long time, slowly sinking. Verse seven, when Ebed Melech, the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs, which was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon, the king then sitting in the gate of Benjamin. Ebed-Melech went forth out of the king's house and spake to the king, saying, My lord, the king, these men have done evil in all they've done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon, and he's likely to die for hunger in the place where he is. There's no more bread in the city. There must be some messianic psalms that echo, even prophesy what would happen to Jeremiah here. Now, in the margin here, stick Psalm 69. Verses one to three. You know, that's um, it's perhaps worth just us turning back to Psalm 69. This is, I say Messianic, of course, the Psalms are all Messianic. They're about the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jeremiah comes to typify the Lord Jesus Christ and his sufferings. And here in Psalm 69, verse one, save me, O God, for the waters have come into my soul. I sink in deep mire where there's no standing. I come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait upon my God. Or verse 14. Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the water flood overflow me. Neither let the deep swallow me up. Let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. I don't know what your challenges in life are at the moment. I do know that people struggle. And I do know that all of us at times will go through very challenging times in our lives. But there are two things that we should be doing in those times. One, keep reflecting, keep reading the word of God when you can. Because Jeremiah knew God's word, he was able to keep on going through these difficulties in his life. So use every opportunity that you have to soak it up, to come to love it, so that actually when those challenges come, you're able to draw on the word. As the Lord Jesus Christ did with the temptations, is able to draw. It is written. And secondly, pray. Jeremiah regularly prayed to God. That's a nice thing to be able to do. Just go through Jeremiah, underline his prayers. Not just thanks for the food, amen. He pours his heart out. Those two things are crucial for us if we're going to keep going through times like this. Well, here in Jeremiah 38, it was left to a Gentile, Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, to once more demonstrate what it is that God wanted. 
Verse 10, the king commanded Ebed Melech the Ethiopian saying, take from hence 30 men with thee. So I mean, you can see how weak Zedekiah is. The next person that comes and says to him, we shouldn't be doing this. He says, okay, let's do something. Um, take from hence 30 men with thee. Take up Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he die. So Ebed Melech took the men with him and went into the house of the king under the treasury and took thence old cast clouts and old rotten rags and cast them down by cords into the dungeon to Jeremiah. And Ebed Melech the Ethiopian said unto Jeremiah, put now these old cast clouts and rotten rags under thine armholes, under the cords. And Jeremiah did so. So they drew up Jeremiah with cords and took him out of the dungeon. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. So isn't it amazing that the king could be persuaded by a random Ethiopian eunuch? It just shows again, doesn't it, how weak Zedekiah was. But God didn't forget what Ebed Melech did. If you turn over to chapter 39 and verse 15 and 16, go speak to Ebed Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring evil, bring my words upon this city for evil and not for good. They shall be accomplished in that day before thee, but I will deliver thee in that day. Isn't that great that he gets told what Jeremiah was told in Jeremiah 1? I will deliver you. And Ebed Melech is, is being told, you are hanging with, you are trying to do the right thing in your life. I will be with you. And of course, that is exactly the same for us. If we are trying in our life to live the word of God, to speak the word of God, to, to be true to it, like Jeremiah was, God will be with us. And that's like Ebed Melech, who was the servant of the king, not the servant of the king Zedekiah. You know, he wasn't interested in him. He was the servant of Yahweh, the king of Israel. So I think we'll finish our studies there. But I will say that the time came when the king of Babylon came down and he got hold of Jerusalem. They took them away into captivity. And Zedekiah had to see his own sons, their eyes being killed in front of him before the king of Babylon took his eyes out. And Jeremiah was looked out for by Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard. And he comes to Jeremiah and he lets him go. Jeremiah, though, still, unfortunately, even when the Babylonians have gone, things go wrong and he ends up being taken down to Egypt. But you can guarantee that Jeremiah will receive his inheritance one day in the kingdom because he loved the word. He ate it up. It was the joy and rejoicing of his heart. And he learned the lessons of the word of God and he allowed God to mold him, went through the trials of life. He wanted to obey his father to be in the promises. And he had this desire for an inheritance. And despite whatever the challenges in this life, that's what he wanted more than anything else. He sought first the kingdom of God. And so the time will come when Jeremiah will be able to see the Lord Jesus Christ reigning. And I'm not going to sort of look at this now with you, but in Jeremiah 23 and verse five and six, he learns that a time would come when God would raise unto David a righteous branch, a king who will reign and prosper and will execute judgment and justice. You know, Josiah executed judgment and justice, but this king was going to be someone who would be do it far better than even Josiah could. He would be able to change people. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. And this is his name whereby we shall be called Yahweh, our righteousness. Let's finish our studies there together for today.
Uh, but in, in our last study, for those of you who are on for that, we kind of saw the, the tragic event of the death of Josiah and how that would have been so upsetting for Jeremiah. Jeremiah had a really difficult job as it was, didn't he? You know, but to have a godly king on the throne would have made it such a comfort. But now that Josiah's died, things were going to get much tougher for Jeremiah. Come to Jeremiah chapter 12. And you see that uh, there's a phrase here that is basically, sometimes it's actually used today even to say things are going to get a whole lot tougher. Jeremiah 12, God says to Jeremiah, in verse five, if you've run with the footmen and they've wearied thee, how can you contend with horses? That's uh, kind of just have a think about that. If you've run with the footmen and they've wearied thee. So in other words, if you've run with, you know, a pace that you've already found wearying now, how on earth are you going to contend while you're running with horses? Things are going to get super tough for Jeremiah. And we're going to see why. Let's go back to the king's record again, 2 Kings 23. So 2 Kings chapter 23. And right at the end of that chapter, we're going to go in and see why things are going to get so much more challenging now for Jeremiah. <clears throat> so remember I told you that Josiah died when he went up to try to deal with Pharaoh, who was going up to Assyria to the Battle of Carchemish. And that's recorded there in verse 29 and 30. So there's the, the death then of Josiah. And we see in verse 30, the servants carried him in a chariot, dead from Megiddo, and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own sepulchre. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's stead. And it's interesting that the people of the land made Jehoahaz the king. So you can see on the screen that Jehoahaz was actually the second son of Josiah. The first was Jehoiakim. Now, why then was that the case? Well, Jehoiakim, we'll see, was really horrible. The people, I think, decided it'd be better to make Jehoahaz the king but actually, he just doesn't last long. Verse 31. So they made him, verse 30, that says that the people took you as the son of Jehoshaphat and made him king. So the people are the ones who put him on the throne. But verse 31, Jehoahaz is 23 years old when he began to reign. He reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, not the same Jeremiah. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Pharaoh Necho put him in bands at Riblar in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and put the land to a tribute of an hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the room of Josiah, his father, turned his name to Jehoiakim and took Jehoahaz away, and he came to Egypt and died there. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the commandment of Pharaoh. He, ex he exacted the silver and the gold of the people of the land of everyone according to his taxation to give it unto Pharaoh Necho. So <clears throat> Jehoiakim is made king by Pharaoh. So why then? Well, Pharaoh comes up and it, Egypt at this point is still a pretty powerful nation. He take, takes Jehoahaz down to Egypt 
and he puts nasty Jehoiakim on the throne and he changes his name from Eliakim, as you saw there in verse 34, to Jehoiakim. Now, Eliakim means God sets up. Eliakim, God sets up to meaning Jehoiakim, meaning Yahweh sets up. So we think, well, why did he do this? Well, it suggests that Pharaoh is a cunning guy. You know, he knows that if he can make the people of the land think that Yahweh, the God of Israel, set him up, they're more likely to listen to him then. Of course, it's not for a moment that, that Pharaoh hasn't put him there to elevate, you know, he hasn't put him there to elevate Yahweh. He wants him there because he knows he's a nasty piece of work and he'll get more taxes out of the people. And so that suggests as well, doesn't it, as to why the people put GOA has onto the throne, because actually they, you know, in their mind, actually he was better than at least Jehoiakim was. But Pharaoh wanted Jehoiakim on the throne because he wanted somebody nasty on the throne to get the taxes out of the people. Well, the first thing that Jehoiakim does is recorded for us in Jeremiah 26. So let's go there now. And I mean, it's basically the way to sort of have a go at putting the chronology of uh, Jeremiah together is to pick out these type of chapters, first of all, that you it tells you at the beginning of the chapter or in, at some point in the chapter, who's on the throne at this time. Um, and once you've got those together, then you start connecting other ones. It might be that the kind of the next chapter so clearly links with it, you're able to say, okay, well, that one would go there. Uh, so if you're ever having a go at doing the chronology of Jeremiah, this is your kind of key points, these sort of things where we see in Jeremiah 26, in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim. So we know where that's going to go in the chronology. But in this chapter, we see Jehoiakim send a group of delegates down to Egypt to fetch one of the prophets of God who'd run there for safety. Uh, so Jeremiah 26 and verse 22. Jehoiakim the king sent men into Egypt, namely Elnathan the son of Akbor and certain men with him into Egypt. And they fetched forth Uriah out of Egypt, <coughs> sorry, and brought him into Jehoiakim the king, who slew him with the sword and cast his dead body into the graves of the common people. Uriah, if you'd followed cross references, would you see is one of the prophets of God. And sadly, Jeremiah, Jehoiakim's just got no respect at all for the prophets. And he sends for this man and gets him brought up to where he is and happily slays him. So you can see for Jeremiah, you, you, know, you thought it was hard going with the footman. You now you're going to have to run with horses. Things were going to get really tough with a vile man like this on the throne. Well, it's during the beginning of Jehoiakim's reign that God sends Jeremiah down to see the potter. So let's go to that chapter that we read together, chapter 18. It's thought that the, the potter's field was on the south of the city, uh, the south of the Valley of Hinnom. And you know, over time, we sort of start getting a picture of how Jerusalem is and you know that actually down on the southwest, southeast side, sorry, you've got there where would be the potter's field of the New Testament. And, and archaeologists have found a big bank of clay there. So, you know, they're absolutely confident this is where this was. So let's just read those verses again from verse one. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house. There will I cause thee to hear my words. 
So I went down to the potter's house and behold, he wrought his work on the wheels. So picture it, you know, for, you know years ago when I was trying to do this study, um, I actually went down to a potter and uh, had a go at doing some pottery to get an idea of this. And uh, yeah, it's interesting for me. And I don't know if any of you guys have ever done pottery, but w what it really struck me is you really have to work hard to actually get the kind of the clay to go into the shape that you want. It's not kind of some simple thing of just touching it. It just happens. You have to really work hard, like, as in you're really working hard on the clay physically, as well as obviously having the skill then to know what to do uh, with it. But he he's watching this potter making things on this potter's wheel the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the, of the potter so that's a key word in jeremiah by the way that word marred often translated destroyed so it's 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 useless this one so he made it again as another vessel that's the great thing about clay isn't it, it goes wrong don't matter here we go let's start again as it seemed good to the potter to make it so we can see this potter working away of course the potter wants to make something good. When things go wrong with the clay, starts again, once again, to try to make something good. And whilst he's watching this potter, the word of God comes to him. Verse five, the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At what instant shall I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom? Here's our key words. To pluck up, to pull down, to destroy. If that nation against whom I pronounce turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom, to build and to plant it. If it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then will I repent of the good, whereas I said I would benefit it. So he's saying, look, you know, can you not see that I, as the potter, I've got this choice to, as to how, what I'm going to make. And depending on whether the people want to be ma malleable and made into something good, I'll make them something good. But if actually they their behaviour is so awful, then I'm not going to use that then for, for that. And so Jeremiah is learning from God. And it's something, too, that we need to learn that God can do whatever he wants. He could make it perfect. That's true. But he's chosen to work with men. He's formed us from the ground. In fact, if I uh, click PowerPoint here, you can see that the word for the, the potter um, is the same word that God uses in Genesis 2. The Lord formed okay, man of the dust of the ground. We're made from clay. This word formed is the word that we're seeing here when we read the, about the pot. It's the same word in verse 11 as well as the word frame. Behold, I frame. This is the word potter again. It's about the fact that God is the creator. I form. This is what the potter is doing. He's creating things. And the lesson goes on because Jeremiah and we too need to learn that God wants Israel and all of us to be made into something good. That's what God wants. Even if we're difficult to mould, as a loving father, he'll work with us. He'll put us under pressure to shape us into something that's very good. And the pressure times for us are, are the struggles that God puts our way. So there will be times in our lives when we will struggle, when life seems very difficult. But we have to accept that this could well be the potter, the Lord God Almighty, working us. The Apostle Peter wrote these words. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God 
commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. And I put it there as another translation. If you are suffering according to God's will, keep on doing what's right and trust yourself to the God who made you. Of course, if we won't put our trust in God and we won't let him work in our lives, then there comes a point if we won't be shaped by him, then he has to let us go in the way that we want to go. In the end, that's what God said. God has created a creation who's got free will because God wants is interested in people who want his ways. If we don't want his ways, in the end, God will allow that. Yes, he wants the best for us, but he's only interested in those who want the, the, the what he wants for us. And so God will, in the end, let us go in the direction that we want to go. If the clay vessel refuses to go in the right direction, then God will fix it as it is. So he says in verse 11, Behold, I frame evil against you and devise a device against you. Return ye now everyone from his evil way. Make your ways and your doings good. They said, there's no hope. We will walk after our own devices. These people, they want to just do their own thing. And in the end, God will allow them to go their own way. Well, let's stick a marker in Jeremiah 18 and come to Romans 9, because this is one of the chapters that picks up regarding the potter. The Lord God is the one who's working with the clay, us. The chapter is all about election, predestination. And the example that's given of someone who was obstinate before God and wouldn't be changed is that of Pharaoh. So he says in verse 17, the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this very purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth that therefore hath he mercy on whom he'll have mercy, whom he will, he hardeneth. Now, I think of the clay. In the end, he's got to harden it as he wants it to be. Well, on first reading, one can sort of think, well, the poor old Pharaoh, he's got no chance of being in the kingdom. You know, it, God just hardens him as he is, you know. But poor old Pharaoh, he's got no choice. God's the one that's just be molding people and uh, he molds those he doesn't want as it's a, into kind of these hard vessels that are going to get broken and molds those who he does want into to characters that will be in the kingdom is there any choice in all this god wants free will remember that remember genesis the very beginning god set man up with free will that's why choice was put there you know don't eat this tree if you, there's no choice there's no free will god wants us to have choice and if we go to the life of Pharaoh, we'll see that he actually ended up as he wanted to be. Come to, um, am I going to get you to turn to this? I think it's probably worth it. No, I won't. I'm just going to show you on the screen. Okay. So let's just uh, look on the screen here at when the plagues came to Egypt. You remember how Moses is told by God to keep going to Pharaoh and telling him that uh this is what's going to happen if he doesn't let his people go. And what you need to take notice there is Pharaoh's heart. And no doubt many of you would have seen this before. In fact, I can kind of remember the first time I learned this was on uh, Bunkhouse, one of the Malvern uh, things when I was a teenager. But you can see, can't you, that six times Pharaoh hardens his own heart. But the phrase normally goes, Pharaoh hardened his heart, he hearkened not unto them. 
he wouldn't listen to God. So in the end, God makes him what he wants to be. God steps in and in the end hardens Pharaoh's heart for him, as it were. So what we learned from that is if we're determined not to let God mould us, not to accept the trials God gives us in our lives, if we won't listen to his word and actually change from what we read, then in the end, God would allow us to go the way that we want to go. And so Paul writes in verse 20, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? So I'm in Romans 9 again, verse 20. Who are you to, to go back to God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why have you made me thus? Why, what arrogance to go to God? Say, well, no, I, I don't like the way that I am. Why have you made me thus? God is in control. He wants to make us vessels of honour, things that are good. Verse 23 says that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. God wants to make us vessels of glory. But if after much endurance and working on us, we won't be molded. If we keep listening to the word of God, but actually, you know, for us, we're just pushing our own way then God will make us vessels of dishonour. We're all made of the same lump. Some people are made to be ones of honour through the work of the Lord Jesus. Some are made for dishonour. It's what, in the end, you choose. God will reluctantly allow it if you choose to reject his ways. Come back to Jeremiah 18 again. Hopefully you managed to stick a marker in there when it says. And turn to Jeremiah 18 once more where we can hopefully see how God works a little bit more here. Jeremiah is saying that there is an end to the long suffering of the potter. The people want to determine their own shape. They're like Pharaoh. They don't want to listen to God. They're defying the potter to follow their own lust. Look at verse 18. Then said the people, come, let us devise devices against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come, let us smite him with the tongue. Let us not give heed to any of his words. It's crazy. They're saying, look, we've got the law. That's not going anywhere now. So why are we listening to, to this idiot? You know, that's how rude they're being really, isn't it, about Jeremiah. We can devise our own devices. It's so dangerous, their thinking. They thought they could be the potter, that they didn't need God. They didn't want to listen to Jeremiah speaking the word of God. Come, let's devise devices against Jeremiah. The law shall not perish. We've got that from the priest, nor the counsel, from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. We've got these things. Come, let us smite him with the tongue. Let's not give heed to any of his words. And I think it's so dangerous, you know, once people have got, you know, let's not pretend that these people cannot have the same attitude that the majority of people have. Uh, and we can even have if we start to say, well, do you know, uh, let's not listen to what this one says. Let's not listen to the word of God here. We've got the word of God. Let's be, try and make our own path here. Let's just try and take what we want to take from it. It's the attitude that says that leave me alone, God. Let me shape myself. I, I'll take random verses from the Lord. We've got this. We can we can just use it as we want to use it. Devise our own devices. I'll think what I want to think and the attitudes that I want to have, I'll have. 
That's such a dangerous attitude. And it's one that's so important that we learn. We must never justify wrong actions by grabbing a verse here or there. Oh, we've got the word. I can, I can justify this. It says here, uh, God loves everybody. D don't worry about it. Let's, let's just do whatever we want to live, do. Well, in chapter 19, we'd say that this is the next chapter. You know, this isn't chronological order because now look at the theme. The Lord said, go buy a potter's earthen bottle. So you can see that, you know, the connection there. So here Jeremiah is told, go and get an earthen pot. So he goes off, buys one of these pots. And it's no doubt like the one he's just seen the potter kind of making. So he perhaps bought it from that same potter. Then he heads out to the east gate. It's the rubbish gate. It's the, the Valley of Hinnom. You know, in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, he spoke about Hades, you know, where the worm dies not, or the, the fire's never quenched because there was a constant fire burning out there that they threw all the rubbish on. And that's the gate that he's now going to, verse 2. Go forth to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entrance of the east gate. So that's where he's going now, okay? So he's heading out. And those of you who've been to Jerusalem, if you've not been there, honestly, go. Amazing place. You know, you could be able to picture going through this gate now, be able to see the valley before you, still there, of course. And uh, there he's looking at where this rubbish dump would have been. And he's told to take with him the ancients of the land, the old pots, as it were, fixed in their ways verse one let's read it together thus saith the lord go and buy a potter's earthen bottle take of the ancients of the people and the ancients of the priests go forth to the valley of the son of hinnom which is by the entry of the east gate and proclaim there these words that i shall tell thee say hear the word of the lord o kings of judah and the inhabitants of jerusalem thus saith the lord of hosts the god of israel behold i will bring evil upon this place that whosoever heareth his ears shall tingle because They've forsaken me and have estranged this place and have burned incense in, unto other gods who neither they nor their fathers have known nor the kings of Judah and have filled this place with the blood of innocence. And so Jeremiah gives the most harsh lecture ever. But actually, if you kept reading this lecture that he gives to them, you'll see it's all seeped in Deuteronomy. You behave like this. So these are the consequences. You see your margin keeps going back to Deuteronomy and, you know, that's worth, again, you know, if you're following these studies up, just keep looking for connections back to Deuteronomy, that law that was found. Jeremiah picking up on it and telling them, listen to this. But then God tells him in verse 10, then shalt thou break the bottle in the sight of the men that go with thee. So remember these ancient people there in verse one, these people fixed in their ways. Jeremiah's being told, got this pot that you've got and smash it in front of them. Verse 11, thou shalt say unto them, thus saith the Lord of hosts, even so will I break this people and this city as one breaketh a potter's vessel that cannot be made whole again. And they shall bury them in Topheth till there be no place to bury. Now, once the, the pot has been heated up, it's gone through the kiln, no longer can it be remolded, can it? There comes a point when it's fixed, this is how it is. It, and, and it's past then. If it then, whereas once it's a, a, the wet clay, it can be molded, reshaped. God will keep working with no problem at all. But if in the end people don't want what God's ways, then he will let them be fixed as they want to be. And if it's a vessel that he doesn't want, in the end, it'll be smashed to pieces. And that's what's happening here, isn't it? Notice. It's not because God is an unjust God. God is a just God. 
They've filled this place with the blood of innocence. See that phrase at the end of verse four? And hopefully your margin will take you to... <coughs> Sorry about that. Your margin will take you to 2 Kings 21, verse 16. You got that in your margin? The blood of innocence. 2 Kings 21, 16, who's that? It's Manasseh. That's what they've done. They filled it with the blood of of innocence, Josiah's grandfather, remember. But I want you to notice that that phrase, the blood of innocence, is also picked up in the New Testament. So let's leave a marker again and go forward now to Matthew 27. Matthew chapter 27. So here... Judas has betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read in verse four that Judas says, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. So you see the connection back to Jeremiah 19 in verse four. This place has been filled with the blood of innocence. And you see, it was that attitude, okay, of people who are rejecting the word of God that ended up rejecting the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I've betrayed the blood of innocence. Innocent blood, we see there. We keep going. He said, what's that to us, the priest? See thou to it. And so Judas, verse five, cast down the piece of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver piece and said, it is not lawful for us to put them in the treasury because it's the price of blood. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter's field to bury therein. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah, the prophet. I wonder if that was actually what's just happened before, because actually the next quotation in verse nine is from Zechariah. But we're not going to get into that just now. If we turn to Acts chapter one, we'll pick up an even more graphic description of what happened to Judas. Acts chapter one. Judas, yeah, we know he recognized that he had betrayed the blood of innocence and he hung himself. And in Acts one and verse 18, read this. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, all his bowels gushed out. And that's pretty awful, isn't it, to read that? But you see, the point is this, Judas became a hardened vessel. His mind was fixed on his way. So in the end, he burst asunder like a hardened vessel. Remember what Jeremiah had to do? God said to him, take hold of that pot, that hard pot that's fixed in its own ways and smash it on the ground and tell them this is what will happen to you. And here we see Judas, who betrayed God, shed innocent blood, went his own way, is now broken like the potter's vessel. And it's the inside, like the liquid in a vessel, pours out. Judas wasn't malleable. He was fixed in what he wanted to do. Other disciples, they made mistakes, but they were malleable. 
And so in Judas, we see the fate of those who won't accept God's ways, who won't allow God to work in their lives. He represents any in the end who, who decide to push their own way, kick against God, won't listen to the son of God. Those nations, those people, those individuals who reject the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back. Look how it's described in Psalm 2. They'll be dashed in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's Psalm 2 speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ coming back. It says, kiss the sun lest you perish. You've got a choice. Will you listen to the Lord Jesus and change? Or do you want to just be dashed in pieces like a potter's vessel? It's powerful stuff, isn't it? And the lesson is there for us to listen to the word of God. Let him mould us. We'll come back to Jeremiah 19 because Jeremiah goes back to the temple in Jerusalem to tell the people their fate. In Jeremiah 19, verse 14, it says, Then came Jeremiah from Tophet. So he's been in the valley with these elders. He smashed this pot up. And now he comes back from the valley back into the city. And he's, he's going to tell them what has happened. He says, he stood in the court of the Lord's house, back in the temple court, said to all the people, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I'll bring upon this city and upon all her towns all the evil that I've pronounced against it, because they've hardened their necks. OK, they've hardened their necks. So they're like those vessels that are hard that need to just be broken. They might not hear my words. They won't be molded by the word of God. Well, do the people want to hear it? No, they do not. And so this brings trouble. Verse one of chapter 20. Now, Pasha, the son of Emma, the priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard the things that Jeremiah prophesied. So you can see after chapter 19, easy to put chapter 20. You know, so clear, isn't it? He heard what Jeremiah is saying. Then Pasha smote Jeremiah, the prophet, put him in the stocks that were in the upper gate, higher gate of Benjamin, which was in the house of the Lord. And so you can see that Pasha smites Jeremiah. And we're not talking about him just sort of punching him in the face sort of thing. This could be the full 39 stripes. It's the same word as in Deuteronomy 25 and verse 3. He was put there in the stocks, which were a form of torture. It had been twisted to cause pain. And Pasha did it in the gate of Benjamin. Did you notice that in verse 2? Why would he do that to humiliate Jeremiah, knowing that people would walk past to know him, hoping to debase him? You now, if we look at a, a map, Jeremiah's hometown is in Anathoth. OK, now we've already touched on that, but Anathoth is in the territory of the land of Benjamin. OK, so. You can see from the, the, the map there, or the, sorry, not the map so much as the diagram of the city, that the Sheep Gate, Benjamin's Gate, is in the north of the city. So it's been put up there so that people that then go, so look at the map where Anathoth is, anyone going to Anathoth to Benjamin would go through that gate. So it's been put there to try to humiliate him. So the people walking out know him and are unkind to him. Just come, maybe we'll stick this in our margins in a moment. See what you think. Come to Lamentations 1. Let's go there first, and then you can decide whether to stick it in your margin or not. Lamentations 1. So I believe that this is when Jeremiah is in the stocks 
in that gate, trapped in real pain, and people are going far past and mocking him. Lamentations 1 verse 12. Is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. From above hath he sent fire into my bones, and it prevaileth against me. Now, the fire that's in his bones, just let's keep a note here. Jeremiah 20 says this in verse 9. Then I said, I will not make mention of him anymore, nor speak of his name, but his word was a fire in my heart. Okay, a burning shut up in my bones. So very clearly, the fire that's in his bones from verse 13 is the word of God that keeps coming to him. But he recognizes that as he's telling people about the word of God, they don't want to hear it. So he ends up being afflicted. He says, from above, hath he set fire into my bones and it prevailed against me. He spread a net for my feet. He's turned me back. He made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgressions. I'd say that's the stocks. Is bound by his hand. They are wreathed and come up upon my neck. He has made my strength to fall. The Lord has delivered me into their hands and from whom I am not able to rise up. He can't stand. He's in these stocks. So I think that those verses, if we went back to Jeremiah 20 and verse 2, I would happily stick in my margin. In fact, I have already. Lamentations 1, verse 12 to 16. Picture Jeremiah in this grim place. In the morning, Pasha comes to release him and Jeremiah slowly gets up. You can imagine he's sore. He spent a night weeping in prayer to God. He says in verse 3, the Lord has not called thy name Pasha, but Magor Mishabib. Now, I mean, this just blows me away, seeing Jeremiah's like confidence in God here, that despite the fact he's been in this all night long, he's in serious pain. He gets up. He still has got the guts to say this. Instead of saying, sorry, Pasha, I'll see you later. He says, the Lord has not called thy name Pasha, which means liberated but called you Megor Misabib, terror on every side. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will make thee a terror to thyself and to all thy friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and thine eyes shall behold it. And I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive unto Babylon, and shall slay them with the sword. Pasha would be terrified when the Babylonian army came, and he was taken to Babylon. No longer liberated, Pasha, but rather shackled. And the irony is that people who think they're liberated and free are actually the ones who are shackled. You know, I remember years ago, I went on a school trip with some kids and another teacher, and we took these kids to Greece. And either say I jumped on to get involved with this one because I took these kids to Mars Hill. Now, remember Mars Hill is where the Apostle Paul is stood and he's telling them about the fact that you've got all these gods that are for nothing, these idols. But he says, I'm going to tell you about the unknown God. And I was on Mars Hill with these kids and uh, another teacher. And uh, I was explaining this to them and to this teacher. And sh she just couldn't get out. And she was like, what? You know, how can you have that? Surely, how, how could you possibly say that these people's uh, idols were nothing? Uh, everybody can have their God. You know, there's no problem at all. She couldn't get her head around the idea that there was such a thing as truth. 
Jesus said, the truth will set you free. I read that in your readings just recently. The truth will set you free. You know, we need to ensure that we're malleable. If we open our ears and our hearts to God, then he can work wonderful things in us and we can be free. And by that, I mean the sense that actually you're, you're liberated to kind of want to please God. You're not any longer pulled down by the struggle of uh, our human nature and by the fact that actually we just simply go into the grave. We've been made free by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can live knowing that we've got the hope of the kingdom and eternal life. What, what a nonsense to pretend that actually anything goes. Of course, there's something that's true and right. Now, of course, there's right and there's wrong. You know, it makes utter sense. It makes sense in any moment. Don't tell any school teacher that there's no such thing as right and wrong. They'll tell you, of course there is. You need to be right. There needs to be rules in the classroom. Don't tell any family there's no such thing as right and wrong. Of course there is. Family life doesn't work if everyone can just do whatever they want the whole time. It doesn't work. And so in society in general, of course there's such a thing as right and wrong. And what an arrogant thing to think that actually we were the ones who should be deciding it and making it up. No wonder in such a mess. Have the humility to say, wow, this word of God, there's science to show it is the word of God. I'm going to trust this. I've suddenly been liberated because I know now what is right and wrong. I know how I should be living my life. And what's more, I've got the hope of a kingdom. The truth will set you free. Everything else will pull you down. Well, this episode brings Jeremiah in prayer to God. It says in verse seven, oh, Lord, you deceived me and I was deceived. You are stronger than I and has prevailed. I'm in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. And what Jeremiah is saying is, look, Lord, you've persuaded me. Look at the margin for deceived, okay, enticed or persuaded. Lord, you've persuaded me and I'm being persuaded. You know, it's the continuous tense in the second word deceived. So it says, look, you have in the past persuaded me. He's persuaded him by the word of God, of course, to, you know, helped him to believe. And you continue to persuade me that you are stronger than me and you will prevail. And despite the difficulties and struggles in Jeremiah's life, he knows he'll come through. And so he says in verse nine, I said, I will not make mention of him anymore. So he says every now and again, Jeremiah says, right, I'm, not, I'm just not going to keep telling people about this. But then his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. I cannot weary with forbearing. I can't stay. I can't stop myself. For I heard the defaming of many fear on every side. Reports say they and we will report it. All my familiars watched for my halting saying, peradventure he will be enticed he will be persuaded we shall prevail against him we shall take our revenge on him his enemies think that they will persuade him that they'll prevail against him and pull him off course they're the same words that he's already used yet this man of faith trusts in god verse 11 but yahweh is with me as a mighty terrible one therefore my persecutors shall stumble and they shall not prevail they shall be greatly ashamed for they shall not prosper. Their everlasting confusion shall never be forgotten. The creator who had performed him and said to him, they shall not fight against thee. I'm uh, quoting from the beginning of Jeremiah. They shall not fight against thee, God had told him. 
they shall not, or they will fight against thee, but they won't prevail against thee. For I am with you, saith the Lord. And you can see that's the language that Jeremiah is now drawing on. He can remember, as he's saying there in verse 11, they shall not prevail. God had promised him they won't prevail. And Jeremiah believes it. And that's really the challenge for us all. Will we let God work in our lives? Will we allow him to mold us into something very good? In the end, it's our choice. But God will willingly give us what we want if we have got this desire. God will willingly help us to get to the kingdom, to make sure we're vessels prepared unto glory. So therefore, keep allowing yourself to be persuaded. Keep opening up the word. Keep seeing these things and allow yourself to be persuaded that he will get you to the kingdom. We'll finish there. Uh, our plan is that this study will be the longest. Um, I had it in my mind that we'd be starting around half past 11, uh, but they, I'm still going to try and go for it in this one. So sort of uh, get ready. We'll try and make sure that we kind of get as much in as we can now. And then our later two studies will uh, be a bit shorter. OK, so I mean, what, what do you know about Jeremiah already? Uh, perhaps uh, you know a fair bit. Perhaps you're kind of feeling like, you know, you just don't know anything at all. Um, but let's try and make sure that if we're going to focus today, honestly, we should really be able to get a good hold on uh, what's going on here. So hopefully you've got your Bibles open on, in Jeremiah. And one of the kind of great things about Zoom, isn't it, is we can just sit with a kind of Bibles uh, on our laps or on a table in front of us, pencil in hand. We're kind of ready to see if we can learn. So let's just recap those first three verses. Words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, the priests that were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. Now, so there we've got three kings named, haven't we? Josiah, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah. But actually we'll see that uh, Jeremiah prophesies during the reigns of five kings. Um, so although I've given the kind of family tree back to Hezekiah, blue stands for good king, red stands for very naughty king. Um, so you can see there that you've got, you know, the one, two, three, four, five are the um, number of the kings. And you can also see it's quite interesting, um, you'll, perhaps we'll touch on that in our final studies, that no, it doesn't sort of go necessarily in the order you might expect. So you've got one is Josiah, two is Josiah's second son, um, three is his first son, Jehoiakim, four then is Jehoiakim's son, uh, Jehoiachin, who's known of other, other names as well, and then five is Zedekiah. Now, all these slides that you see today, you just have to email and ask. You know, I'll, I'll give you my email at some point. And if I forget to, then just uh, ask Sam or somebody at Melbourne and we'll make sure they get to you. It's all for you. Um, 
But um, yeah, at the same time, ju just get your pencil out, engage in this now. You know, I, I, I'm a teacher. And one thing that I kind of learned about teaching is that you will learn if you're engaged in it. If, if you're just sat right now on the sofa, just thinking that you're going to remember this. Let me tell you now, at the end of this study, somebody will ask you something and you'll be able to kind of remember one thing. If you're engaged in it, getting some notes down, you'll, you'll find that you're able to t take it on and get some notes in your Bible. This time, when you're doing your, your readings next year in Jeremiah, you'll remember some of these things and you'll build on them. You know, that's, that's what we want to be doing, isn't it? We want to be trying to learn from the word of God. We're, we're not just passive learners. So this is actually over a long period of time. So on this next slide, you can see I've put some timings now to, to give you some ideas here that uh, Jeremiah uh, prophesies for 18 years while Josiah is still the king. And then uh, both Jehoiakim and Zedekiah reigned for 11 years. And then the other two kings that you wouldn't have seen mentioned in those first few verses of Jeremiah, uh, Jehoahaz and Jehoiachin, they both reigned just for three months. Um, but you can then see 18 years, 22 years, you know, just over 40 years, Jeremiah is prophesying. So it's a long time, isn't it, that he is working in coming each day and telling people the word of God. Well, as I mentioned, the first King Josiah was a godly man who did great things in Judah. The rest, quite frankly, were a nightmare, except possibly Jehoiachin, you know, Jeconiah, his name is sometimes, uh, whose motives are a little bit more challenging for us to judge with certainty. But let's go back to the, remember, whenever you're looking at prophets, you know, whenever you're doing any Bible study, if you're in a prophet, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, who, any of the minor prophets, then get back to the historical record wherever you can to be able to get an understanding of the history where they are prophesying in. So we're going to go back to 2 Kings chapter 22. So 2 Kings 22, and here we're going to pick up when Josiah comes onto the throne. 2 Kings 22, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jediah, the daughter of Adaiah of Boscath. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. So Josiah was a good king, but, but that wasn't an attitude that he got from his father. His father was Ammon, who only reigned for two years, but he was awful. And if you just look back to the previous chapter, uh, 2 Kings 21, and um, from verse 19 to 26, and we're not going to read that now, but you know, you would find out about Ammon and you'd realise that he was uh, a pretty grim king over the time that he was on the throne. And actually, Josiah's granddad, Manasseh, was unbelievably evil. He burnt some of his children as sacrifices to heathen gods. Uh, look at verse 16 of 2 Kings 21 for a summary of his reign. 2 Kings, uh, 2 Kings 21, verse 16. Moreover, Manasseh set, uh, shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another beside his sin, wherewith he made Judah to sin in doing that which was evil 
in the sight of the Lord. So Manasseh was a, a grim one, wasn't he? Now, actually, it, he did repent at the end of his 55 year reign. And God is such an amazing God that he was willing to forgive him. But it seemed that that was too late for Ammon, his son. He didn't learn from his dad's repentance. Rather, he, he learned from the evils that he did. And so, so much so that we're told in verse 24 of 2 Kings 21, the people of the land slew all of them that had conspired against King Ammon. And the people of the land made Josiah, his son, reign in his stead. So verse 23, sorry, the servants of Ammon conspired against him and slew the king in his own house. So, you know, even though Josiah was only eight years old, they were so keen to just get rid of Ammon. He was such a kind of awful guy that was reigning. And so Josiah then was made the king, as we read in verse one of chapter 22, at the age of eight. And from a young age, he clearly set his heart right with God. No doubt he was influenced by his mother. You know, we know her name there in verse one, Jediah, and that means beloved, as well as people like uh, Shaphan, the scribe. We know about him. Uh, we know about Hilkiah, the high priest at that time. And, and I would suggest that Jeremiah and Josiah probably went to the same Sunday school class. You know, we might put it like that. Right. And the same CYC. Uh, it should be the Saturday class for them, shouldn't it? I guess back in those days. But uh yeah, and there's some other people that might well have been in that CYC, you know, Jeremiah there, Josiah there. You know, these are guys growing up in Jerusalem, uh, Daniel, Zephaniah, possibly even Mordecai. You know, that, that's pretty cool, isn't it, to, to think about uh, those people possibly coming together on a, on a Friday night. I, You know, I might, I'm obviously conjectures going on here, but it, it, it's just interesting, isn't it, to see those people of a similar time period. And certainly there's a, it's a great lesson there, isn't there, that actually who we hang out with matters. You know, I, I, if, if you're going to take a lesson from that as, as young people today, take that lesson. The people that you hang out with really matters. Now, if you are hanging out with people at, uh, you know, in whatever kind of setting you are in, where you might be in school and college and wherever, you know, same for me at work. You know, if I make my uh, social life, uh, about hanging out with those people then it would really pull me down and it would do the same to anybody it matters who we are hanging out with well we learn from the kings and the chronicles records that josiah did his best to cleanse the land of the evil that his grandfather and his father had done and and when you're sort of first reading it, you're thinking oh brilliant you know uh, people are changing this must be be great but Actually, what we realize is that the people who are living in Jerusalem and Judah are not changing. And that's a really key reference there in Jeremiah 3. Uh, we're going to just have a look at the historical record a bit more in a moment. But ju just get your head around the fact that actually the people were actually just feignedly. So in other words, it was fake, really, how they were turning to God. So they weren't turning with their whole heart. They were just sort of uh, half-hearted in their approach. And that is just no good. You know, you, you've got to get to a point. I, I completely understand that when you're younger, as a teenager possibly, then you're trying to make decisions. And of course, it's right that you make decisions. But the point that you make the decision to serve God 
You've got to make it as a decision that, yes, this is what I want. And that is going to therefore affect the things that you do in your life. It's going to affect the things that you say. It's going to affect the things that you watch. It's going to affect the things that you listen to. It's going to affect the job that you might have. It's going to affect the people that you hang out with. It's going to, every part of your life is going to be affected. But we'll see. It can be affected in a really good way. Actually, you know, once you've made that choice, once you've said, actually, God's ways, I can see are better than the, the world around me. I'm going to make this choice. Massive blessings can come to your life because of that. Well, it was in the 13th year of Josiah's reign that God called Jeremiah. And he's a, a man who would be taken by God on this incredible life journey. And God would use him to tell the people of Judah and Jerusalem a really hard message. They were going to learn that God was going to bring the Babylonians down into Judah and Jerusalem and take them into captivity. And that had to happen because the state of the nation had got to such an awful state under Manasseh, Josiah's uh, granddad. And of course, that got worse as well under Ammon as well. If you turn to Jeremiah chapter one, like we will come back to the historical record some more, but let's go to Jeremiah one. And uh, yeah, just try to sort of get our minds on this now. Now, we think about the history of this. The Assyrians, okay, so the Assyrians were like the superpower in the Middle East, uh, reigning from uh, Iraq, uh, and that would be the territory that we know today, and into Iran, uh, the coming to across, uh, across to the top of Syria as well, uh, over Israel, so on the north of Israel. And the Assyrians had taken the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity now some 100 years ago, uh, 722, is when Samaria, which is the capital of Israel, fell. And now Judah and its capital, Jerusalem, are on a sure course to go the same way because of their obstinate attitude towards God, uh, which is being shown in the way in which they're living their lives. So let's just pick it up from Jeremiah 1 now and pick a, think about Jeremiah sort of in this time being called by God. Verse 4, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Then said I, Ah, oh, Lord God, I can't speak. I'm a child. The Lord said unto me, Say not, I'm a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. And so Jeremiah's had this calling from God and you know he's nervous about it and he's very clearly saying like, uh, uh, you know who am I like I, I'm, I'm just a young guy like why, why, why would you be sending me I, I don't know I can't speak I'm not somebody who's who's good at doing that kind of thing and God is saying to him no you are going to but you're going to do it in my strength not not your strength and sometimes when we consider our own lives we we struggle to deal with how it is that God has chosen me. Let me tell you now, like, you know, I went through that when I was a younger person. Why, how do I know about all the people in the world? Why me? And I don't doubt that you will have had that same thought. You know, it might be something that you're struggling with at the moment. 
in the end, when we consider our lives, we may well struggle with how it is that God has chosen us because we don't see ourselves as better than anyone else. In fact, often we kind of can even see people in the world who seem to be better than in, in our own perception than we are. And a verse like this can help us because we realise that even great prophets couldn't understand. But the lesson is simply to accept it. We may struggle with knowing how to tell people about our faith, like Jeremiah. I, I can't speak, he says. But here God was never asking Jeremiah to go and speak his own thoughts. But he was saying, no, you're going to say my words. And so he says there in verse eight, be not afraid of their faces. I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and, and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, behold, I've put my words in thy mouth. See, I have set thee this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build and to plant. And so he's saying, look, don't stress with thinking about how you're going to put this, how you're going to say you're going to say it as it is. You're going to say my word. God will do the rest. And, you know, again, that is such a useful lesson for us that, you know, look, don't spend ages think, trying to dream up some cunning plan of how it is that you can possibly just try to say it as it is and trust that God will do the rest. Well, here in verse 10, if you like colouring and if you don't like colouring, then honestly, what's the matter with you? Who doesn't like colouring? So here I've gone for light green. Now, you choose whichever colour you like. OK, but here are some key words that are going to come up in Jeremiah now. And like, I wouldn't normally say colour the same uh, colour, lots of different Hebrew words the same. In this case, I've got to go away with it in my Bible because these words quite often come together in Jeremiah. So we're going to come up with six words here. Four of them are, are very strong negative verbs. Um, and it's saying this place needs an overhaul. And then you're going to see two positive verbs because God's ultimate plan is that he's going to plant and to rebuild. So here in verse 10, God says, I'm going to root out, number one, pull down, number two, destroy, number three, throw down, number four. There's your four negative verbs. This, this place needs to be overhauled. But then we see these two positive words, because actually God's ultimate plan is to build and to plant. And if I don't touch on those later in our study, then hopefully what you can do is by just by the fact you've colored those now, you would be able to see from uh, chapter 18, verse 5, 20, 24, verse 6, chapter 31, verse 28, 42, verse 10. I've purposely said it as quickly as you can, because basically I don't want you to know now. I want you to uh, look those up for yourself and see those words coming through in key points in Jeremiah, seeing them coming together. But I want us to consider now the signs that God gives to Jeremiah. So here in verse 11, God is going to help Jeremiah to see, look, I, I am with you. OK, and you might say, well, I would trust if I was given signs in my life. Let me tell you now, we have got signs coming out of our ears at the moment. It's unbelievable if you are willing to open your eyes to see the signs of the times that make me confident and no doubt many others confident who are looking at these things that we are near 
to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in terms of the King of the North, it's so obvious who it is at the moment. It, Russia is camped in Syria right above Israel with ships and things. That's what the King of the North is going to come with. In terms of the King of the South, right now we're seeing territories that aligned with uh, Tarshish, with Britain, um, but territories in the Middle East, you know, um, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Bahrain, and now Saudi Arabia, looking to make peace alliances with Israel. Those things, and I'm not going to be able to go into detail now about that, but those things are phenomenal signs that help us to see that we are close to the return of the Lord Jesus. But, I mean, if you found those ones, you think, well, I'm not quite so sure. Israel is back in the land. Absolutely amazing. Jerusalem is run by Israel. Incredible. Okay, 1948, 1967. We believe that we are living in the last days. We have the signs. It's whether or not you will respond to them. Well, here, Jeremiah's given some signs. And the first sign, you might think, well, I'm not sure this would help me. He says to Jeremiah, uh, what do you see in verse 11? He says, I see the rod of an almond tree. Then said the Lord unto me, thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. So the first sign that Jeremiah sees is the rod, a branch of an almond tree. And what on earth would that be around? Well, whilst it might not mean a, a much to us, for Jeremiah, this would have been really significant because he was a, a descendant of Aaron. Jeremiah is a Levite. Now, stick a marker in, in Jeremiah. We're coming back here, but let's go to Numbers chapter 17. Numbers 17. Now, this chapter follows on from the rebellion of Korah, Dathan and Abiram. And Korah, Dathan and Abiram were trying to undermine the authority of Moses and of Aaron. And so after that rebellion, God helps Israel to realise this is who I've chosen. And he does that by getting the, each of the tribes to come together with a rod, a stick, basically. And they come together with these rods. And then well, if we sort of uh, skip down to how these rods come together, we see in verse six, Moses spake unto the children of Israel and every one of their princes gave him a rod for each prince, one according to their father's houses, 12 rods for the 12 tribes. And the rod of Aaron was among their rods. And Moses laid up the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of the witness. So, so in other words, the tabernacle came to pass on the morrow, Moses went into the tabernacle of witness and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded. So it's come alive and brought forth buds and bloomed blossoms and yielded almonds. There's the key, right? So this, this sign was then put there, wasn't it? To say, this is the one, the tribe that I have chosen, the Levites. They are going to be the ones. So God has done that on purpose there, hasn't he? The rod of Aaron blossomed and it was an almond rod. OK, now back in, in Jeremiah chapter one, we can see then why that would be super significant for Jeremiah. And what's interesting here is that the the word for almond is a word like I put it on the screen for you there, shakat, something like that, right? And 
the link that we can see here that's interesting is it's the same word in verse 12 as hasten or I'm not sure I can't remember what uh, when we read the NIV what the word was there but in the AV it's the word in verse 12 I will hasten my word to perform it there's this word that we've got and now the link is this, and you might think, why is it on earth is the word for almond the same word as the word for hasten? And it's really simple as to why. The almond is the first tree to blossom. Hence it hastened into blossom. And, and what Jeremiah is being told here is that, look, God's word is moving forward at a pace. And Jeremiah, you are going to be telling people about it. What a calling he's got. Now, Jeremiah's being told, you are the chosen one. You know, this is the almond rod. You are the one. The pre-slips are there to keep knowledge. I want you to go and speak to people about my word. Well, Jeremiah's then shown a second sign in verse 13. The word of the Lord came unto me the second time saying, what seest thou? I said, I see a seething pot, like a cauldron, and the face of it is from the north. It's coming from the north. The Lord said unto me, out of the north, an evil shall break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. So this was the key point that Jeremiah had to tell the people now. God was going to visit them, pour out his wrath upon them. And he was going to do that, although it doesn't say it here, by using the Babylonians. And what Jeremiah had to do was to try to convince the people of Judah and Jerusalem, accept the fact that God is going to do this. He's going to bring this punishment against them, just like we know for a fact that God is going to use the king of the north and they're going to come down into Israel. And the Lord Jesus Christ will then go to save them. We know that that's going to happen. Well, so, too. God was telling Jeremiah, you need to tell these people, I am going to bring the Babylonians down into the land. They need to accept that. And if they do accept it, I will look after them. Well, what would have made it so difficult for Jeremiah at first was that Babylon at this point wasn't a superpower at all. Not yet for some 23 years. So you can imagine that the people didn't give him much time or attention. Just like, you know, if you'd have gone back 30, 40 years, Russia was just like in a, a, a kind of broken state. The USSR had kind of fallen to pieces. And there were people in, in the meeting who were saying, look, it's never going to happen from them. You know, that's not where you're going to see the, the King of the North coming. But there were faithful brothers and sisters who were saying, look, you know, from studying the word of God, it's really clear that's who it's going to be. And now we see them building that power building. And so much so that they're now camped out in Syria, directly north of Israel. And we recognize, we see them taking the Crimea. We see them taking other nations. We recognize that, wow, it's there. The sign is there. But people who don't want to believe, nothing will change them. They still won't. Believe. In the end, it's a choice. Do you want to believe it? Do you want to put your faith in God or don't you? The signs are there. It's your choice, though. Will you go for it or will you not? You know, Moses, when he stood with the people at Ebal and Gerizim, blessings and cursing, said, I set before you this day, life or death. Choose life. Yeah, there's a choice. That's true. And you've got a choice. Who, what will you serve? Yourself or God? 
life or death. But there's no choice. Moses doesn't say, I set for you today, life and death. Choose life, or if you like, choose death. He says, choose life. There's no choice. When you see these signs, choose life. Put your trust in God, and he will look after you through all the challenges and difficulties of life. Jeremiah's going to go through some tough stuff, but he knew that God was going to be with him. As he said in verse eight, God says to Jeremiah, I am with you to deliver you. God will deliver us in the end. Well, what was Jeremiah then doing in the early part of his uh, his kind of prophetic work, of his job, as it were? Well, I, I think that actually there's a good chance that he was spending a lot of time reading up on the word of God, particular prophecies like Hosea. There are hundreds of links between Jeremiah and Hosea. And I say that the reason for that would be that Hosea was one of the prophets who went to Israel, so the northern kingdom, just before they were taken by the Assyrians. And, and Hosea had this same hard message to give that Jeremiah was now about to give, that God was going to come, Hosea was having to tell them. The Assyrians would come down. And that's Jeremiah now is going to have to say the same thing, not about the Assyrians, but the Babylonians coming down. He draws on the language of Hosea very much. I'm sure he'd have studied other prophets too, like Isaiah. Uh, you see, men of God, although they were inspired, Jeremiah, Hosea, Isaiah, they searched out the word of God to understand his purpose. They didn't always understand it themselves. You know, they were being given these things to, to say. It wasn't that they suddenly just automatically had an understanding of it. But they loved it. They loved the word of God and they took comfort that God was in control. We have to remember that too. God is in control. His purpose is working itself out. He's hastening to perform it. Well, it was in the fifth year of Jeremiah's job, in his ministry, as it were, as he's being this prophet, that something really exciting happens. Come back again to 2 Kings 22. 2 Kings 22. So the fifth year of Jeremiah's ministry would equate with the 18th year of Josiah's reign. Okay, So remember, Jeremiah started in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah. Okay, We know that from Jeremiah 1 and verse 2. So in the 18th year of Josiah's reign, that would be five years into Jeremiah's job. And here then in 2 Kings 22 and verse 3, we read that it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshullam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may sum the silver which is brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the door have gathered of the people. And let them deliver it into the hand of the doers of the work which have oversight of the house of the Lord. Let them give it to the doers of the work which are in the house of the Lord to repair the breaches of the house unto the carpenters to the builders to the masons to buy timber and hew stones to repair the house so josiah wants to pay the men who are repairing the temple and it's a good principle isn't it that uh you know if somebody's doing the work they should be looked after for it now here it is josiah saying right make sure these people that are giving this time they're being sorted out we pay them for the work they're doing 
And obviously the whole temple had gone into a terrible state under Ammon, you know, for 55 years under Manasseh. So, you know, things would have got buried, you know, dusty, disgusting, quite honestly, in there. Uh, and yet these guys are going in and trying to sort out the temple. And Josiah says, look, let's make sure they're paid for this. Well, while they're in there, an immense discovery is made. Verse eight. Hilkiah, the high priest, said unto Shaphan, the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. So the Chronicles record now, and if you've got a cross reference in your margin, I've got one to 2 Chronicles 34 and verse 14. Just circle that. Or if you haven't got it, just write it in your margin. 2 Chronicles 34 verse 14. Because the Chronicles record says, the book they found was by the hand of Moses. So it may well be that they found the original law that Moses had written out. Now, if that had been found, what a find. And it gets an immense reaction from Josiah. Verse 10, Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest had delivered me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, that he rent his clothes. Josiah wants to know more. He doesn't send for Jeremiah, which suggests to me that Jeremiah was still perhaps a background figure at Jerusalem, even at this time. But Jeremiah does get his teeth into this law and he is learning from it too. Keep a finger here. We're going to come back here. Stick a marker in. Where's an extra pen? Pencil. This is why you need to have your pencils on hand. Stick a marker in and let's go to Jeremiah 15. Now, we're not going to have time today to kind of me talk you through the chronology of Jeremiah. Um, it's notoriously difficult. Um, it's not unusual. I don't know of any prophets that kind of give all their things just in, in, in absolute order. It just doesn't work like that with God. You know, that always they kind of go into vision to the kingdom, come back out. Things are put together to learn lessons. So, so really, you've got to take it as it is from chapters one to, to 52 and actually kind of think to yourself, why is that chapter being put next to that chapter, or that chapter being put next to that chapter? Because it's not throughout in chronological order. But these early chapters, I would say, are in the reign of Josiah. And again, if you ask for it, I will happily send you my kind of suggestion of a chronology, uh, which is built on other people's suggestions as well. And uh, yeah, it's something that you sort of can enjoy trying to, trying to study yourself for some time. But here in Jeremiah 15, let's have a look at this. Jeremiah 15 and verse 16. Thy words were found. Well, it's so obvious the cross reference, isn't it? 2 Kings 22, verse 8. Hilkiah the priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law. Thy words were found. Look at this though. Jeremiah loves it. Thy words were found. I'd eat them. Thy words were unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by thy name. Oh, Yahweh, God of hosts, like, just how lush is that? Just seeing Jeremiah's reaction there. You know, thy words are found and like, I, I could eat them. Now, why would he say that? Well, the, the words that are found, I would suggest that in terms of the, the book of the law that was found, it would have been the book of Deuteronomy. And I, I love the idea that, you know, it was the one that Moses wrote out. So the book of Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, there's cross-reference on the screen. Man does not live by bread only, 
but by the word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. You see, Jeremiah understood those words. He knew that God wasn't saying literally you're supposed to eat the word of God, but he got that actually this was what was going to sustain him more than anything else. The word of God would be able to keep him alive. The Lord Jesus Christ got it absolutely too. You know, every day he made that what he wanted to take on board. You know, the manna was given to them um, morning by morning. You read that in Ezekiel, in Exodus chapter 16 and I think verse 21. But in Isaiah 50, we read about the Lord Jesus Christ that morning by morning he took on the word of God. You know, that is what sustains us. And so Jeremiah here just like, so chuffed when the word of God is found. I did eat them. They were a re- the joy and rejoicing of my heart. You know, you think of Jeremiah being this, uh, sometimes people talk about him being this negative down person. Yes, he's got to give a hard message, but he is as thrilled as any of us should be, perhaps more so in his case, such a godly man. He's so thrilled to read the word of God and excited by it. It's the joy and rejoicing of his heart. Well, yeah, I want to go back then to uh, 2 Kings 22, and I want us to think about our own lives as we're turning there. What is your priority in your life? Do you devour the word of God when you get the chance, or is gaming your thing? You know, do you devour the word of God or are movies your thing? Do you devour the word of God or is is sport your thing? Now, I say that knowing that all of those things, like I would love, that's not quite true with gaming. I never got beyond Tetris, but, you know, actually, any of those things could be a habit that I could have in my life very easily. I love a a good movie, you know, get into a story, great. No, and same too with reading a book, you know, it's going to get glued into some book. But actually, what is the priority? And what I would tell you with this, and this is my best tip for Bible study for you, is make a time in your life where either in the morning or in the evening, you properly give time to the word of God. And if you do, I promise you this you will find it is your joy and rejoicing. You will love it. You will get up and you will dance around your desk. You will be so chuffed. You'll be thrilled by the things that you will see in the word of God. Make it your priority. For Jeremiah, he loved it. For Josiah too, he loved the word of God. For Josiah, he sees these things. Yeah, like at first he's ashamed and he kind of tears his clothes. Like, what, you know, what, what sort of state are we in? And of course, it should get that reaction from us. We should be really thinking, heck, you know, I need to make some changes here and see how Josiah does make changes. Look at his energy here in chapter 23 now, 2 Kings. 2 Kings 23, look at this. This is an easy one to colour again, Okay. Uh, I, I went for green again, you know, uh, um, I'll tell you about some other colours, I promise. But 2 Kings 23, verse 1, the king sent and gathered unto him all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord. Verse 3, the king stood by a pillar. Verse 4, the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest. Uh, verse 5, and the king and he, that's the king, put down the idolatrous priest. Verse six. And he brought the grove from the house of the Lord. Verse seven. He break down the house of the Sodomites. Verse eight. He brought all the priests out. Verse 10. He defiled Topheth. Verse 11. He took away the horses 
Uh, the end of verse 12, the king sat down. Verse 14, he broke in pieces. Verse 16, Josiah turned, he spied the sepulchres. Verse 18, he said, let's do this. Verse 20, he slew all the priests. It's Josiah doing he, he, he. He loves it, doesn't he? He is absolutely desperate to make changes. He's heard the word of God that's been found. It's right. Let's get into action. We've got to try to make some changes. But as the emphasis in the record suggests, the people weren't in it like Josiah was. And so it says in verse 26 or verse 25, like unto him, there was no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, neither after him arose any like him, notwithstanding the Lord turned not from the fierceness of his great wrath, wherewith his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations that Manasseh had provoked him with all. And do you remember that cross-reference? I'll give it you again now because it's a good place to put it here. Jeremiah 3 and verse 10. The people turned feignedly with their hearts. They weren't wholehearted. Josiah, in contrast, turned with all his heart. Their heart wasn't in it, but his was. And you know, the heart here is such a key word. It was a key word in the, the very law that Josiah was trying to uphold. You know, 43 times in Deuteronomy, emphasis is laid on the heart. And so you'd expect it to become a key word in Jeremiah because Jeremiah is listening to the word of God. He loves it. He's trying to eat it up. He's taking it on board. So, so 52 times the word comes up in Jeremiah. And again, yours is the choice of color. But, you know, one of these days go through, you know, and just color it in so that it's just there for you to see. You recognize the heart is crucial. Now, come across to Jeremiah now in chapter 17. Jeremiah 17 and verse one, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. So in other words, it's like absolutely indelible with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their hearts. You know, they've just got to a grim place, haven't they? And unless we change our heart, we're kind of facing a losing battle. You know, what do I mean by that? Well, unless you want to serve God, unless your heart's desire is to be in the kingdom to, for the glory of God. And when I say for the glory of God, I don't mean that in some complicated way. I mean in the sense that you recognize that his ways are better than your ways. They're better than mankind's ways. His ways that were shown in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the loveliest man that ever lived, are worth following. That's what I mean by for the glory of God. The Lord Jesus Christ was the manifestation of the glory of God, the word made flesh. And I look at that and I think, I, I wish I was more like that. I want to be more like that. And I believe that in the kingdom, I'll be changed to be like that. And I believe that now is my time to try from my choice. God's given us free will to try to put his characteristics in my life. And I see it as a pleasure. Like, it's great. It's a delight to try to do that. I, I fail every day at it. But that is my priority. That's what I want to do. That's what your, your choice is. 
Do you want to go down your ways with your corruptness? Or do you want to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of God? When we're saying, if you're not trying to do it from the heart, it's pointless. I mean, what is your motive? Do, do you want this more than anything else? Or are you just for the sake of somebody else in your life, somebody that you know, just every now and again, sort of signing into this stuff? But actually, you know full well that if you had your own time, you'd probably just spend your entire time doing whatever you want to do. You wouldn't care two hoots about this, really. It's just actually just something that you do for the sake of it, for someone else. That's just an external thing. You've got to want it. It's about the heart. And so he says in verse nine, the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? No, it's a challenge, isn't it? But we've got to be willing to change our heart. Verse five, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm. That's, flesh his arm just means his strength and whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land and not have inhabited. Blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. He shall be as a tree planted by the waters. If you're not stuck it in your margin, stick Psalm 1 there. So clear. That's what Jeremiah is drawing on. Psalm 1. You know, blessed is the man who trusts in God. He'll be like a tree by the rivers of water. It's lovely, isn't it? So unless we change our hearts, we're fighting a losing battle. We have to want to serve God. Our heart's desire needs to be changed from our, its natural inclination that goes towards the flesh, as verse 5 is saying. The Lord Jesus Christ said, I've got it there from Matthew 15, out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts. You can see on the screen, Matthew 15, verse 19, murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemy. You know, we are naturally corrupt. No. But he also said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Make this your priority. You know, love these things. And actually, you will find that you are being changed as a person. You know, you will always, unfortunately, hold on to this kind of corrupt nature until the kingdom comes. But eventually, when that kingdom does come, you will be changed and you will be made like the Lord Jesus Christ in the glory of God. How good is that? Well, sadly for Jeremiah, Josiah dies when he's only 39 years old. You know, when Josiah's 39. He made a mistake. He, he went off to uh, help the Egyptian or head off the Egyptian, sorry, when they uh, were going off to fight another battle, the Battle of Carchemish. You can kind of read about it in the history books. But Josiah went to try to head them off and it, he ended up getting hit by the archers and ended up dying. And, and Jeremiah would have wept bitterly over that because Josiah was the godly one. And he knew that in this man's death, Judah's last hope of any survival was absolutely vanquished. I'll give you a reference, I think it's a kind of really sure reference to uh, Josiah. It's there in Lamentations. So Lamentations, the Lamentations of Jeremiah, it says, the breath of our nostrils, the one who's keeping us alive, the anointed of the Lord, knows the king, was taken in their pits of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the heathen. And Jeremiah there is lamenting like he's so gutted that actually 
Josiah has died. He calls him the, the breath of our nostrils. This is the one you like. So Josiah was such an inspirational guy. You know, he dies at 39, but he, he loved the word of God. He was changing and, and that was helping the people. They were like, like, you know, yeah, those who were willing were changing. Jeremiah obviously loved the fact that Josiah was king. Under his shadow, we can live among the nations. But sadly, Josiah did die. And Jeremiah, as I said, recognised that that was the end. If we turn to Jeremiah 22, I think you get an idea here of just how much this affected Jeremiah. Jeremiah 22. This verse is some 20 years later in history. But read in verse 10. God is telling Jeremiah, weep not for the dead, neither bemoan him, but weep sore for him that goeth away. And I think that that is a reference there to Josiah, that Jeremiah is still years later, just utterly gutted by what happened to Josiah. But as I say, it was that blow that helped Jeremiah recognise the certainty of God's word. Judah would be taken to the land, from the land of Israel to the land of Babylon. And he needed to see that Judah were going to lose the privilege that God had bestowed upon them. Now, I can either stop now or I can share something that will take me at least 10 minutes, but I think is awesome. So what do you think? Crack on. Okay. I'll take Absolutely. the thumbs up. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Okay, cool. So what we're going to see now then, guys, is something that is amazing. When I was shown this, uh, I just found this incredibly helpful. Joseph, Jeremiah has got to get these people in Judah and Jerusalem recognising that they were going to lose the privilege that God had bestowed upon them. They were going to be taken into exile. And to get that message across, he gets them thinking about Shiloh. Now, I put that on the screen that Jeremiah mentioned Shiloh five times. No other prophet ever mentions Shiloh. You might think Shiloh, Shiloh, no, what's going on with Shiloh? And you might know some, some kind of really cool stuff about it. But in the end, we're going to turn to chapter seven here. I'm going to take just almost a simple point from this. But it's just uh, it's amazing how this comes together. This is what happens, you know, when he's studying the word of God, you see these things phenomenal. So Jeremiah seven, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, stand in the gate of the Lord's house. So he's there in the gate of the temple. Proclaim there this word, say, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings. And I will cause you to dwell in this place. Trust not in lying words, saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. If you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbour, if you oppress not the stranger and the fatherless and the widow and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in the land which I gave to your fathers forever and ever. But behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Well, what's that verse four about then? What are they trusting in these lying words? The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord of these. 
the people are thinking arrogantly, we've got the temple of Yahweh. Nobody can touch us. Well, of course, in itself, the temple of Yahweh was nothing. God, God wasn't interested in them having this physical temple. What he wanted was their hearts. So he says in uh, verse uh, 11, is this house, which you call by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. But go ye now unto my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first. Now, Shiloh, remember, is where Samuel grew up, okay, with the tabernacle there. Go to Shiloh, okay, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you've done all these works, saith the Lord, and I spoke unto you rising up early and speaking, Ye heard not, and I called you, but ye answered not. Therefore will I do unto this house, which is called by my name, wherein ye trust, and unto the place which I gave to you and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. So he's saying, look, you inhabitants of Jerusalem, you're trusting in the temple of the Lord like it's some superstitious thing. You're not actually changing at all. So learn the lesson that happened at Shiloh. Well, let's go back to 1 Samuel then and try to learn what happened at Shiloh. 1 Samuel, and uh, yeah, we'll go to chapter 1 first of all. 1 Samuel chapter 1. One Samuel 1. There was a certain man of Ramathem Zophim of the Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up out of this city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the house, unto the Lord of hosts, sorry, in Shiloh. Okay. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests, were there. Now, Eli's sons were wicked. God was annoyed with Eli that he didn't try to stop their really bad behavior. And Eli was made clear, or sorry, God made clear to Eli that he was going to lose the priesthood. That it wouldn't continue with his offspring. God says, you know, it's not going to keep going with you, Eli. The way that your sons are behaving, this is horrific. The priesthood is going to be taken from them. So see this now, 1 Samuel 2 and verse 27. There came a man of God to Eli, said to him, Thus saith the Lord, did I plainly reveal unto the house of thy father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel? to be my priest, to offer upon mine altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? Did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? Didn't I give you this privilege, God is saying? So why, verse 29, are you kicking at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I've commanded in my habitation? And honour your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, above me, to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the people of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said, indeed, that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, be it far from me. For them that honour me, I will honour. And them that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. So God is saying, look, the privilege that was yours is going to be taken away. Verse 31, the days come, 
I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house. There shall not be an old man in thy house. So hopefully we get the idea. They disobeyed God and despise God. So God says, well, you're going to lose the privilege that is yours of being my chosen priesthood. And Samuel, as a young boy, has to deliver this message again to Eli in chapter three. So 1 Samuel 3, Samuel is this young lad who's gone to, to live here. His mum is such a faithful woman. She's put him here, recognising even though that the place is a pretty awful place with Eli, Hoffman and Phineas. But she trusts in God. And here in chapter three, Samuel has got to go and say this. Chapter three, verse 11. The Lord said to Samuel, behold, I will do a thing in Israel, at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. In other words, people are going to feel so uncomfortable hearing this. In that day, I will perform against Eli all the things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile and he restrained them not. Well, this is pretty harsh, isn't it? Right. You need a marker. Okay. Stick a marker in here and come to 1 Kings 2. And we're going to see now the fulfillment of this, that God, of course he does, you know, he says this is what's going to happen. So it happens. He says they're going to lose the privilege, you know, that the priesthood is going to be taken from that family and it's going to be given to another family. So 1 Kings 2. And now, so this is a few years later, you know, you remember Samuel is a little boy, you know, he grows up, he anoints uh, Saul, who's the king, and then, then David is king, and then Solomon comes onto the throne. And this is in the reign of Solomon. We read here in 1 Kings 2 and verse 26. That Abiathar the priest, say with me, Abiathar the priest, 1 Kings 2, verse 26, said unto the king, uh, sorry, and unto Abiathar the priest, said the king, so Solomon's talking to Abiathar, get thee to Anathoth unto thine own fields, for thou art worthy of death. But I will not at this time put thee to death, because thou bearest the ark of the Lord God before David my father. And because thou hast been afflicted and all wherein my father was afflicted. So Solomon thrust out Abiathar from being priest unto the Lord. Why? That he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which he spake concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. So now Abiathar is being stopped from being the priest. Eli's family are losing the priesthood that was theirs. Now, on the screen, I've kind of put the um, the family tree of Aaron. Aaron, remember, you know, back in number 17, he was the chosen one. OK, the one who was given the the, the rod that blossomed, the almond rod. And the priests went through Ithamar. OK, and hence Eli was a priest. But they lost that privilege and it was going to be given over to another one of Aaron's sons, uh, Eliezer, who eventually goes down to the, the line of Zadok, that is going to be priest. So then you see in verse uh, 35, for example, of 1 Kings 2, and the king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, in his room over the host, 
and Zadok the priest did the king put in the room of Abiathar. Okay, so let's just recap what happened in Shiloh. They were behaving badly. They were disrespecting God. They were appalling in their behavior. So God took away the privilege of that family and gave it to another family to be the priests. And where were they banished to? Well, just look again. We read it in verse 26 of 1 Kings 2. Get thee to Anathoth. That's where he's being told to go. So he went off to Anathoth. And he lost this privilege that God had given him to be a high priest. You remember that Anathoth was where Jeremiah was brought up. So in your margin against verse 26, circle Anathoth and stick in it. I'll give you the cross reference. Jeremiah 1. And verse one, he was of the priests that were in Anathoth, in Benjamin. That's where he was. Well, I don't think necessarily he was one of their descendants, but he grew up in this, this little village of Anathoth with these people, bitter about what they'd lost. And back in Samuel, so remember I told you stick a marker in Samuel. So hopefully he did manage to do that. But if he didn't, then go back to 1 Samuel 3. We want to see an expression that's used here. Remember, I pointed it out. 1 Samuel 3, verse 11. I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. And the cross-reference in my margin is where? Jeremiah. Jeremiah 19 and verse 3. So let's go there. Keep holding 1 Kings 3. Keep, leave your marker there. Let's go to Jeremiah now. You probably feel like you've got 55 markers all over the place. The only ones I've got in place right now is, is the Samuel. And now I've gone back to Jeremiah 19. So we left off with Jeremiah 7, didn't we? Go to Shiloh. Have a look at what happened in Shiloh. If you're going to understand the certainty of the fact that you are in trouble as a nation. See what I did. You, you think you can just trust in the temple of the Lord? That's what they did in Shiloh. They trusted in the ark in Shiloh. They said, oh, we got the ark. You know, we're fine. Don't worry about us. And we've got the ark of God. No, no one's going to no one's going to damage us. This is the ark of Yahweh. I mean, it's the, the living God. We're fine. We can do what we like. And now they've got that same attitude in Jeremiah. So they said, look, we've got the temple. We've got the temple of Yahweh. Don't worry about us. We are fine. No one's going to interfere with us. And God says, go back to Shiloh. They had the ark. Look what happened to them. I took the, the, the uh, priesthood from Eli and his sons and I gave it to another because of the way they were behaving. Do not think that that's not going to happen to you. You are going to lose the privilege that's yours. You're going to be taken into captivity. It's going to happen. Don't put your trust in just saying because we've got the temple, we're fine. Well, here then in Jeremiah 19, we are. And we're going to see this phrase. It's exact. Same Hebrew phrase, 1 Samuel 3, verse 11. I'm going to do a thing which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. Here we are, Jeremiah 19. Thus saith the Lord, go and buy a potter's earthen bottle. Take of the ancient of the people and the ancient of the priests. Go forth to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the east gate, and proclaim there these words that I shall tell thee and say, hear the word of the Lord. O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring evil upon this place that which whosoever heareth his ears, his ears shall tingle. 
1 Samuel 3, verse 11, in our margins there. The exact phrase is used. It's only used the other time is in 2 Kings. Take this reference down. 2 Kings 21, we've been there, verse 12. That's Manasseh's reign. Because of what Manasseh did, Josiah's granddad, Jeremiah, is now saying this. So it's used in three places in Scripture. 1, 1 Samuel 3, verse 11. 2, 2 Kings 21, verse 12, Manasseh's reign. And 3, Jeremiah 19, and verse 3. Why is this phrase then used? Well, because the spirit through Jeremiah is showing that the situation in Israel is like that in Shiloh. In fact, twice we've been to uh, chapter seven uh, and now I want to come to chapter 26 and you'll see this now, this idea of getting back to Shiloh. So there in chapter seven, we saw it go to Shiloh. And here in chapter 26, he says this, doesn't he? Chapter 26, verse four. Thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, if you will not hearken to me to walk in my law, which I have set before you, to hearken to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent unto you, rising up early, sending them, but you've not hearkened, then will I make this house like Shiloh, and will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. Verse nine, why is thou prophesied in the name of the Lord of our saying, this house shall be like Shiloh and the city shall be desolate without an inhabitant. And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. They don't like what they're hearing from Jeremiah. If they were going to understand the tragedy that it would happen, they had to understand how they were going to lose God. If they were people who were going to try and comprehend what's coming, they had to think about what had happened in Shiloh. Two separate occasions, chapter 7, chapter 26, Shiloh comes out. God is just and the judgment that he will bring is just. When he says there at the end of verse 6, it will make this city a curse. That is actually the same word that we see in 1 Samuel 3 and verse 13. His sons, Hophni and Phinehas, made themselves vile or the margin said, made themselves accursed. Now, why am I pointing that connection out? Well, I think it's because in my mind, what he's saying is they bought it upon themselves. Yeah, God is just. God is going to bring this judgment upon them, and it's a judgment they bring upon themselves. They've chosen to be accursed with the behavior that they're behaving, the way in which they're behaving. They brought it upon themselves and Judah had done the same. They despised God. And Jeremiah is saying, you're like Hophni and Phinehas. You're bringing a curse upon yourselves. And the prophet is picking up on what happened in Shiloh. And the historian's doing the same to wake the people up. The, the tragedy of losing their ark was something that could be impressed upon this people that might shake them to their senses and the realization of the, the awfulness of losing the glory of God. Well, in the same way that the house of Eli thought, as long as they had the, the temple of the, the ark of God, that they were therefore safe. That's what was going on in Jeremiah's time. They thought they had the temple of God, so they would be OK. And, you know, the sad thing is, despite the fact they were taken into captivity and they eventually those who trusted kind God did bring them back. 
in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, some 600 years later, the Jews have got back into that same thinking. And, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ has to draw on what happened in Jeremiah's time to then try to draw a lesson for his time. Let's finish here. Come to Luke 20. Finish our study here. I won't go long. I'll just show you these connections and you can stick them in another time, as it were. But you see, human nature, our hearts are corrupt, you know. People so quickly slip, don't learn the lessons. And here in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jews of his day had the same attitude. They thought that they were fine. They were God's people. No one's going to touch them. And the Lord Jesus is saying to them, you are going to be punished. The Romans, not the Babylonians now, are going to come against you. And so in Luke 19, Jesus says well, in verse 41, Luke 19, verse 41. When he was come near, he beheld the city, Jerusalem, and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even now, at least in this thy day, the things which belong to your peace, you know, if you knew what needed to happen before peace is going to happen, now they're hid from your eye. You can't see what's going to happen. But of course, he did. He could see. The day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast trenches about thee and compass thee round and keep thee on every side. You're going to be trapped and they'll lay thee even with the ground and your children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because you don't realise the time of your visitation. And you know, at that time, I'll put this on the screen for you now. The Lord Jesus Christ is very clearly connecting back to the time of Jeremiah. You know, look at it then, verse 46. It is written... My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And when he says it is written, Jeremiah 7 and verse 11, Jeremiah 7, go to Shiloh, see what happened there. And so can you see how the Lord Jesus Christ is bringing out the same lesson? And it's a lesson that, of course, we need to try to learn now. We need to respond to what God has provided. In Shiloh, they lost the privilege that was theirs. In Jeremiah's time, they were taken into, into captivity. In the Lord Jesus Christ's time, you know, just after his time, in AD 70, the Jews were scattered. You know, the Romans scattered them throughout the world. Our God doesn't want a half-hearted approach. He wants us like Josiah to turn with all our hearts. He wants us to trust him to believe what he says, to believe that he's with us to deliver us as he promised Jeremiah. And we can be confident that if we do and we choose his ways over our own ways, the ways of the world, then we'll be amongst those who overcome. We'll finish there.